Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. We all know the name Yukon, but do we know everything they and their students do? We talked to a graduate about his startup fish food business that is taking him around the world. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. We all know the name Yukon, and maybe you were a student there or know someone who is or who teaches there, or you follow the Yukon Huskies. But do we know everything that Yukon and its students do? In this episode of Connecticut East This Week, we uncover the amazing startup businesses of one Yukon graduate and how they are being supported by Yukon's School of Business. This amazing story we are about to hear takes us from Middletown in Connecticut around the world to the Middle East. I caught up with Peter Goggins, the Yukon graduate and startup business owner, and Ryan Coles, assistant professor of management and entrepreneurship at Yukon's School of Business, to talk fish food and global business. Ryan and Peter, thanks for joining us on Connecticut East this week. It's great to be here, Brian. Thank you for having, for having us. Incredible stuff going on at UConn. We were having a little pre-chat before we started the interview, and I was saying, you know, we hear of UConn, we know about the mighty UConn, but we don't know about half the stuff that actually goes on there. So we're going to try and start, you know, putting out some more of these incredible stories about the talented and creative people that not only work there, but students that pass through there. Peter, an incredible story for you. You started a business. It took you sort of maybe halfway around the world is a little bit exaggerating, but it certainly took you around the world. Tell us about, you know, where this idea came from and how you ended up where you did. I remember the first time I became interested in aquaculture. It was summer after my junior year of high school. I just had my wisdom teeth out and I had nothing better to do than uh, sit around and, and read. So I was reading a National Geographic article about overfishing and that really piqued my interest in the topic. And then uh, as I went into college, I chose environmental science as my degree of choice. And I focused more and more on, on fishery sciences. And going through the process and going and earning that degree, I, I learned more and more about the issue of overfishing, particularly the overuse of fish meal in the animal feed industry. And at a certain point, I said to myself, like, I understand this problem pretty well at this point. Why can't I at least try and do something about it? And that's when I decided to basically just start experimenting. I bought a ton of fish tanks, lots of fish. Operation just got more and more sophisticated as we went on. And, you know, soon enough, my parents' house had a couple thousand gallons worth of fish tanks, big hundred gallon tanks in the garage, basement. We were using parts of the shed in my old bedroom at some point. We were just growing fish and trying out different formulations and stuff. And after a while, I hit on some findings. I said, all right, let's commercialize this. Let's try and sell. And Ryan, you were also involved in this. Tell us your side to this as well, because it was a collaboration in the end, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, Peter and I met when I first arrived to University of Connecticut as a new professor, and he was just wrapping up his undergraduate career. 
and he had started Pisces Atlantic. And we had at UConn already a lot of great programs that served great for Peter as incubators and accelerators, but there was a gap in our ecosystem because once someone like Peter graduates, we don't have anything for our alumni. And, you know, technology companies like Peter's need a longer runway. It's not like software or a type of app. He's got complex manufacturing and distribution. There's a much bigger supply chain that you need to build. And you've got this interesting thing in his industry where you've got really, really big industrialized clients and then some small players. And there's nothing in between. And so all of that combined, I noticed that there was an important piece that needed to be developed in our ecosystem. And that was what Peter and I call the Foundry, a entrepreneurial support organization that would work with startups for longer than three to 12 months, like a typical accelerator. So these startups could have a longer runway beyond any type of point of graduation. And that could do more than just provide a network for venture capitalists, but a network to help them build up suppliers globally, if needs be, to help them acquire clients globally, if needs be. And that's where I stepped in and wanted to work with Peter because we saw that we could help Pisces Atlantic grow from a manufacturing capacity that service just small clients to big clients by going abroad where you have middle-sized clients because that's what he needed, right? You can't hop from manufacturing for just small clients to big clients. You've got to be able to find those mid-level clients along the way, but those though didn't, didn't really exist in the US, but they exist in emerging markets. And so I could leverage my global connections in the Middle East. And now, you know, next week we're going to Latin America to do the same thing so that Pisces Atlantic could acquire mid-level clients and finally scale to the point where it can service even large clients. Peter, talk to us about the fact that when Ryan said to you, hey, let's go to Jordan in the Middle East because <laughs> I've got clients there. What's your reaction? Because, I mean, that is, it's a big thing. I mean, you know, Jordan is an incredible country. The Middle East is also, I mean, incredible in a certainly in lots of entrepreneurial sort of like organizations and businesses. But what was your reaction when Ryan said, yeah, hey, let's go to the Middle East, baby? And that okay. is a direct quote. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I was I was surprised that that's where he wanted to go with this because the Middle East isn't really known for its aquaculture, right? You know, you've got your Southeast Asia, you know, huge, huge, huge volumes of fish produced there. You've got the Southeast United States. You've got uh, Norway, Canada, Iceland, UK, all those places, you know, famous for their farmed fish, Ch uh, Chile, those places. And particularly what I'd been focusing on was these like really high value feeds, salmonid feeds, you know, salmon, trout, char, and and sturgeon stuff like that to sort of make up for the fact that I really could only produce small volumes. So when he said, you know, let's go to Jordan and, you know, I have a bunch of contacts there and, you know, we'll see what we can do. Let's see what we can sell. I was sort of scratching my head and it was sort of a moment where I was like, all right, you know, I got, I got to trust him here because I, you know, I, I didn't know much about Jordan, but I did know that, you know, it's an importer of food and it's, it's mostly desert, right? They don't have a whole, they don't have a lot of fish farming there, but he was totally right. There are those mid-level clients there who demand, you know, just the right volume that I could go yeah, all right. I could stretch. I could. I could definitely. I could definitely achieve that and sort of provide the next rung up on the ladder, so to speak. And just to select to help the listeners out here, I mean, fish farming apparently, as I understand, is an emerging uh, agricultural industry in Jordan. There, you know, the Jordanian government is really heavily pushing this type of industry. But 
what you found, if I'm correct here, is that this industry was sort of being served by one large company, which was high prices for the farmers, etc., and not necessarily a good quality type of fish feed, which is the market that you were in, which is obviously where you saw this opportunity. Yeah, the aha moment for me was we were driving around and interviewing farmers. And they all kept telling, I didn't even believe the first one when he told me because it was so ridiculous. They were telling me how much they were paying for it, which was, again, almost twice what you'd pay for a high quality comparable feed in the in the States here. They told me what the feed conversion ratio was. So the feed conversion ratio describes the amount of feed required to raise one pound of marketable product. And not only were they paying twice as much for feed, their feed conversion ratios were like 50%, almost 100% worse in some cases, which effectively means they're paying four times what they should have. Their, their inputs were four times what they should have been to get a set output. And that's when it was like an aha moment for me, like, oh, wow, they're they're not just desperate for an affordable product. They're they're desperate for something that actually works. They want, you know, they need their they need to get their money's worth. That's sort of when Flash, he was uh, my translator and driver and our contact on the ground there. We looked at each other and we're like, okay, I I see what I see what could happen here. You know, Brian, I think you brought up a great point about aquaculture in general in terms of it being a really fast growing industry. Peter, you know off the top of your head some of those numbers. It's actually quite fascinating how fast it's growing compared to other types of agriculture sectors. Yeah, in a typical year, it's five to seven percent compound annual growth. It's it really is impressive. Uh, we hit a, a pretty strong plateau in the amount of fish total and edible fish that we pulled out of the oceans around 10, 20 years, 20 years ago now. So all the increase in demand since then has been made up for by aquaculture. Brian, you also highlighted that it's not just a great market, but you have governments understanding that they need to act in a regulatory way to encourage this for the wider food security of their populations. So I think Peter's company, Pisces Atlantic, is in a really good sweet spot in terms of the product that it's got. It's economical, it's sustainable, and it's helping farmers all over the world. And I love Brian too, if I can just make one other point, your highlight about the Middle East as a region. And I think you're absolutely right. We think of the Middle East and when we look at mainstream you know, media, we just focus on where there's conflict. And sometimes we lose sight that this is a massive region, 330 million people. And it isn't just all conflict everywhere. It's got a rich history in terms of civilization and cuisine and knowledge and culture and art. And there's actually a lot of great opportunity there. And I think sometimes in the business world, when we think of emerging markets, we just think of China and we kind of maybe unconsciously or subconsciously close ourselves off to thinking about other areas around the world that would be really, really attractive markets to go to. And it's it's a practice that I think is becoming more and more important for startups in order to survive. You know, becoming a multinational business is no longer something that happens when you grow over 10 or 15 years, you naturally become multinational. More and more, one of the best strategies to compete for startups, startups like Pisces Atlantic, is we need to be multinational, you know, now at the start to be able to get the revenue to keep going. And Peter, I just want to quickly go back to you as well. And how long were you in Jordan for? Eight or nine days. And I understand that by the time you left, you'd actually sealed the deal. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. We we had a gentleman's agreement about what we were going to sign. So yeah, I just came home. Ryan and I wrote up the details, sent it over. So in principle, we'd agreed on it. I mean, how did that make you feel? Because I mean, that's incredible as well. I mean, there's one thing to go over to this country and see a potential market, but then to walk away eight or nine days 
days later, actually with a contract, that doesn't always happen. No. In fact, I would often say that I I hate the sales process. Honestly, I, sales can be fun, but in my experience in the company, I hadn't always enjoyed it. In fact, just the opposite. And this was a very enjoyable process. Actually, it was it was always the conversations were always quick. They were always efficient. You know, they asked cursory questions about the specifications and approximate price range, but. More often than not, a lot of the prospective customers that we spoke to were just happy to have an American product in front of them. We were sitting at one meeting and Schlash is speaking in Arabic to the farmer and Schlash turns back to me. Like, this is like a couple sentences in. We, we'd sort of just finished with the, you know, the pleasantries. And he turns back to me and he goes, he says, I'll buy it. And I was just blown away because I was like, I, I haven't told him anything yet. There's no, I haven't told him any prices, specs, testimonials. Well, you know, why? And, and he says, he, you know, he says it's American and he says, you know, he knows it'll be a good quality because of that. So yeah, he's happy to buy it. And that's the important thing as well is it is so, again, I think so undersold in this country that American goods are still highly sought after around the world. And that brand America is worth a lot and still carries a lot in many of these countries, which as I say, we often forget about. To a degree that, yeah, I, I mean, I, I thought I understood that pretty well, but no, you're absolutely right. It, it carries a lot more weight than I'd anticipated. And I think that says something about about our efforts to set high standards for ourselves on what is a suitable product. I think it says a lot about the standards we set for ourselves in terms of education and the standards that we set for ourselves in different professions. And yeah, you know, uh, Brian, Peter, like you guys just pointed out, I think we're in one of those moments again as a country where we're down on ourselves about what we can do, whether we feel like we have value, you know, and, and the fact of the matter is we do. Made in America still matters for a lot of people around the world. And we do produce good stuff here at home. Here in Eastern Connecticut, we're pushing obviously for, you know, more sort of like, you know, Connecticut made in Connecticut goods as well. And manufacturing has certainly become a hot button issue. And, you know, the manufacturing industry as a whole has changed incredibly over the years. I would quickly want to pick up something with you, Ryan, which I was uh, reading before we sort of like started doing this uh, interview. And it says you've been called as having a quirky reputation for your research-based economic development collaborations. What does that mean? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so if you look at most management or entrepreneurship and strategy scholars, they tend to focus on large Western corporations. And if they do emerging market stuff, it's probably large Chinese corporations. And if you're doing startups, they're sil they, they are looking at Silicon Valley style high tech startups. And I always thought to myself, because, you know, the conversations there are always about how they're risk takers and how they deal with uncertainty and man, isn't this great? And I always thought to myself, I don't know. I, in my mind, what's more disruptive or more risk taking is that lady in Mexico in a community where there's a ton of drug cartel violence and she's trying to run her juice shop and make a living. Like, don't tell me about risk-taking. That's where risk-takers are. And I was always more drawn to that, trying to build a business in that type of context. And so because of that, gained that kind of reputation, I have done a lot of quantitative research, but also on the ground fieldwork. And I think that's where it gets really quirky is that I actually go to these places. So I actually spend a month hiking to a remote village in the Himalayas just to reach a yak cheese factory right? And and think about how you build a yak cheese factory at 18,000 feet in the Himalayas that's isolated from any modern city, right? How do you grow that? 
or I'll go deep into the Amazon and think about how you can build and grow juice shops there, or how do you help refugees in Syrian refugee camps in Jordan have an economic livelihood? Or in May, I'll be headed to Ukraine on the ground in person to start to think about how can Ukrainian business owners try to have an economic livelihood during the war? And what can we do to help them grow after the war? You know, it's going to take over $400 billion to get their economy moving after the war ends. And just about $130 billion of that is for hard infrastructure and buildings. The rest is that soft economic stuff, you know, management help, strategy help. And so we've got to get on the ground now, I think, and do it. And I'm just one of those, maybe I've got a screw loose or it's quirky. I'm willing to go and put in the research time to do it face-to-face. As you said earlier in this interview as well, we think about the Middle East as just being full of conflict. But even if there is conflict in countries, and of course, you've just mentioned the situation in Ukraine, life and business still has to go on. And we forget about that because we're so detached from it. You know, we see it on the on the media, but we forget that people's lives continue. Businesses have to continue. And it is difficult, but that is the reality of life anywhere in the world. And, and even more so, obviously, in a country that's being torn apart by conflict as well. Peter, I want to ask you this question, and we're heading towards the end of the interview here, and so much more that we could discuss, and we we will be following up with both of you, because these are incredible stories that um, that we are talking about, as I say, coming out of, of UConn. What's the next steps, you know, for your business? Where do you go, you know, the next five years or so? Sort of like Ryan said, in the, in the very short term, next week, we leave for Latin America, we're, so we're going to be touring Peru, trying to do much the same thing as we did in Jordan. In May, we'll be going back to the Middle East, to Egypt, Jordan, in Saudi Arabia, making a tour through theirs to sort of uh, double down on the venture in the Middle East. We're piecing together the plan to go through the rest of Latin and Central America, maybe in this fall. But the idea is to just build up the volume of sales revenue to the point where sort of a respectable player in the market. And, you know, once you're a large enough agribusiness, that's really when you start to take off, right? That's when things start coming together for you. It's easier and it becomes easier and easier once you've passed a certain threshold to, you know, put together supplier contracts and, you know, you're you can start subcontracting things at like a reasonable rate and you know all of a sudden you know, per unit trucking costs go down. Once you move out of like the pilot stage, the the sort of niche stage, that's the point where things start to become a little bit attractive. And I think from what we've modeled and how things are going so far, it really looks as though we're going to really, uh, you know, put our thumb in the eye of a bunch of fish meal producers. You know, we're going to be able to really cut that out and provide a, a much more sustainable, a much more effective and a much healthier alternative to to what's being used on the market today. I would just say, if I know Peter isn't into sales, but I'll be shameless it, <laughs> and, and say, you know, uh, one of the things that we'll be looking to do with Pisces is do another raise. And I think that if any of your listeners out there are, are interested in supporting Connecticut manufacturing and exporting. Uh, I think Pisces Atlantic is a great opportunity to do that. And also, uh, we're going to give those investors a banger return. All sounds good. And absolutely, let's uh, keep it, uh, well, when I say keep it local, let's support local, um, even though that uh, that local can go way beyond the boundaries of not only this country, but around the world as well. To you both, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. We have just scratched the surface of these incredible stories, and uh, we will come back and and follow you and see where your fortunes take both of you. But Peter, in the meantime, congratulations, obviously, with the business and where you're going so far. And uh, Ryan, it's been an absolute pleasure talking 
talking to you and congratulations on the continued work that you do at UConn as well and helping these young people achieve these incredible so like business uh, opportunities and these new startups, which of course we know that we desperately need because business has to constantly keep moving. So to you both, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Brian. Thanks so much, Brian. And you can find out more about Peter's business at his website, PiscesAtlantic.com, and the work of Ryan Coles and the Yukon School of Business at Daigle Labs, that's D-A-I-G-L-E-L-A-B-S dot business dot yukon dot edu. Looking for a one-of-a-kind experience this season? Visit Wicked Tulips, the place where happiness blooms. Imagine walking through more than 700,000 tulips of all different shapes, colors, and scents. You can find just that at our farm in Preston, Connecticut. We're open seven days a week through the month of May, and entry is ticket only. Ready to tiptoe through the tulips? What are you waiting for? Just go to wickedtulips.com for more. Come and celebrate the grand opening of the Art Eastern Connecticut's new cookie factory. Discover why people can't get enough of our classic crunch chocolate chip cookies. Visit the cookie factory at 22 Route 171, Woodstock, Connecticut, and support us as we walk in partnership with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. The Art's classic crunch chocolate chip cookie, more than just a great cookie. Visit theartect.com and find out more. Green Valley Tree LLC is proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week. Contact Green Valley Tree LLC for all your tree removal and plant health care needs and more. Find us at GreenValleyTreeWorks.com or call 860-234-4041. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. Two Eastern Connecticut bus companies that merged just a year ago have rebranded to become one. Middletown Area Transit and Nine Towns Transit will now be known as River Valley Transit and continue to serve 15 towns in the region. Joe Comerford is the executive director of River Valley Transit and says apart from a new name and new technology to help their customers use their service, they're also reviewing where the buses go. We are in the middle of doing uh, route changes right now. We're taking public feedback still, but we're looking at many changes to our routes and schedules to improve connectivity, decrease trip times, decrease transfer times and improve our service coverage. The new company will continue to serve customers along Connecticut's shoreline, River Valley and up to Middletown, providing traditional bus rides as well as dial-a-ride and on-demand services. Robert McGarry is the first selectman of the town of Haddam, one of the 15 towns the bus company serves, and says it's an essential service for his community. Well, I think this is a great thing, bringing the two districts together. It'll better serve all the constituents. Haddam, we have about 6,000 adult residents. We certainly don't have 6,000 jobs in town. So people need to leave Haddam to go to work, to do a lot of shopping, and the bus provides a great service for those. River Valley Transit will be rolling out new smartphone technology to allow people to see in real time when their bus will arrive and all their buses will cater for those with disabilities. Information about the new bus company and all of its services can be found at their website, rivervalleytransit.com. Connecticut advocates are calling on the General Assembly to pass the state's Voting Rights Act. Edwin J. Vieira of the Connecticut News Service reports. 
The bill would enshrine the protections of the Federal Voting Rights Act of 1965 and eliminate certain barriers to voting specific to Connecticut. The bill would provide new legal tools to fight discriminatory voting rules, expand language assistance for voters with limited English, and adopt strong protections against voter intimidation. Jess Zacagnino with the ACLU of Connecticut describes how the bill's preclearance program aims to handle voting rights problems before they happen. This program basically would put the burden on local governments where there are records of discrimination and that's set out in a formula in the bill to prove that certain changes they make to their election procedures wouldn't harm voters of color or other protected groups before those changes could go into effect. The bill was introduced in the General Assembly during the 2022 legislative session but never advanced out of committee. During a public hearing this year, some people said the legislation only makes voting more complicated, albeit less reliable. Others feel the bill is too broad and tears down federal protections. It has been filed with the Legislative Commissioner's Office. I'm Edwin J. Vieira. Starting July 1st this year, babies born in the state of Connecticut that qualify for Medicaid or Husky because of their family's financial status will automatically be enrolled in a new baby bond program. Connecticut was the first state in the nation back in 2021 to establish the program that looks to address the wealth gap in the state. State Treasurer Eric Russell says the program will be managed by his office and explained what an enrolled baby in the program can expect financially. There would be $3,200 invested in a trust that would be managed in the treasurer's office, and that money would grow over the life of that child. And when that individual is between the ages of 18 and 30, they'd be able to access those resources for specific purposes. We anticipate that the dollar amount would be between eleven dollars and $24,000. Russell says the program will also provide financial literacy training and advice on how recipients can best use the money. We've had preliminary conversations around having mentor organizations or businesses that you could connect with these children, not just when they're receiving the funds, but as part of their education process growing up, right? So you have mentors in thinking about if you're interested in starting a business, you could be connected with someone that could kind of help guide you along the path and maybe connect them with an internship in their business as they're thinking about some of these things. Recipients of the baby bond money would also be allowed to use the funds to help buy a home in the state or even pay for higher education. An estimated 15,600 children each year, nearly half of all births, are born into poverty in Connecticut, one of the richest states in the nation with one of the highest wealth disparities. The city of New London's famous Wailing Wall mural got a makeover recently from the original artist 30 years after he painted the original. Artist Robert Wyland was in the city for around four days to paint a brand new mural with a Wailing theme. Mike Passero is the mayor of New London and says it means a great deal to the city. It's sort of a dream come true. I couldn't really believe it when I heard that he was available, willing to come back and really do a reprieve of, of something great that happened in the city 30 years ago. So, yeah, we're thrilled. Passero says they've spent around a quarter of a million dollars on the new project to make sure the wall the new mural is painted on is prepared correctly and hopes the new one will last more than 30 years. Talking at a dedication ceremony in the city to hand over the new mural, Wyland said it was good to be back. Great honor to be here, you know, in New London, 30 years after I painted the first one. It's just been amazing. And, you know, what makes these projects great are the beautiful cities and the people that we meet, the volunteers, the people that come down here and just bring their kids. And it just makes it so special. You know, those stories. I've met most of you people before, and now you guys have kids, and their kids are going to have kids and be able to enjoy this mural for many, many years to come. 
Weiland has painted just 100 whale-themed murals around the world, and the city of New London's was number 41 back then, and now becomes his newest and possibly last mural as he moves on to new projects around the world, creating 100 huge sculptures of sea animals, some of which will only be able to be seen underwater. And in the day this week, the University of Connecticut men's basketball team packed Gampel Pavilion one last time after their 76-59 victory over fifth-seeded San Diego State in the national championship game. The Huskies returned to stores for a celebration with the best fans in the country, according to head coach Dan Hurley. Fans stood on overpasses on Interstate 84 and lined up along Route 195 to cheer on a bus full of Huskies as they returned to Gampel Pavilion with the program's fifth national championship trophy. A victory parade and rally was held in downtown Hartford on Saturday. The parade began at 11.30am at the State Capitol building with a noontime rally outside of the main entrance of the XL Centre. Hurley recognised the significance of playing in the NCAA tournament, the Final Four and the importance of basketball as a sport in the state of Connecticut. The men's program has now won five titles all since 1999, while the women's program has taken home 11 titles since 1995. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 